Good morning, everyone. We spent the past week really just, in a sense, recovering and still celebrating, but getting over just the, all that happened during the missions conference. It was such a, such a delightful weekend. We're privileged to have a great team of missionaries that we can partner with, and it was so fun to get to know them. And for many of them, this was the first time that they met each other, and so to watch them interact and get to know one another was, was really fun as well. And they expressed their deep appreciation for the, the welcome and the love and affection that they felt from, from our church all throughout the weekend. And so you can see in the bulletin the list of people who participated in one way or another, and what a great offering of praise to our God. I'm so thankful for a church that has a, a love for Christ and a love for the world and really desires for Christ to be made known throughout the world. So on behalf of the missions team, on behalf of our the missionaries that came, receive our gratitude and may God be praised for all that has taken place. If you've not yet had a chance, please fill out the attendance forms that are in your row and pass them down the row and maybe pass them back and make, make a new friend this morning. But we'd like to know who is with us as we go from week to week just so we can keep track of one another and know who it is that's gathering as we worship the Lord week by week. Uh, please make sure at this time that your cell phones are turned to silent or off um, so that it's not going off during the sermon. And good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. We're excited about being able to get into the Word of God and excited that you're with us through this medium and may the Lord guide us as we study His Word this morning. So good morning to all of you online. Well, in the days before modern harbors and modern shipping operations, a ship had to wait for high tide before it could make it to port. The term for this situation in Latin was ab portu. It meant a ship that is standing off port waiting for the moment when it could ride the turning of the tide safely into the harbor. And the English word opportunity comes from this Latin expression. We even have a saying, we say we wait for the opportune time. The captain and the crew were ab portu, ready and waiting for the moment, for they knew that if they missed it, they would have to wait for another tide to come in. Well, in our text this morning, we see that the Lord is going to provide an opportunity for three of his disciples to experience something dramatic concerning his true identity. Now, it was not the disciples who were waiting for this experience. It was the Lord who was waiting for just the right time. He's in charge of all things. And what these three men experience in this opportunity that they will look at this morning left a lasting impression on them for the rest of their lives. And so here we have the opportunity ourselves to be, learn from the Word of God this morning. And as we prepare to study the text that we'll look at this morning in Matthew chapter 17, if you are able, I invite you to stand once again in honor of his word as we read it and prepare to study it. And the truthful word of God says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. But when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord, given under careful direction of God the Holy Spirit, that we might learn in a fresh way who is this Jesus now glorified that we serve. Let us receive it for its intended blessing. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, we have just sung to you that only a holy God could speak and the earth tremble. 
And we thank you, Father, that you remind us that you are still a God that speaks. You have given us your word. And you have arranged things in such a way that we are privileged to have a copy of it in our hands and on our electronic devices. And so, Father, may we never forget the blessing that we have that we can hear from you at any time by opening and reading. And in these moments, Father, we recognize we need you as our teacher. And so guide us. At these moments in the recesses of our hearts and minds, we surrender to you and we submit to you the anxieties and the fears and the problems that we brought with us. We cast them at your feet because we can trust you. And free us, Father, to hear and to see and to listen and to understand as you teach us now through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. But before we get into this passage this morning, you'll recall that last time when we were studying in the Gospel of Matthew together, we got to this enigmatic saying, some of you standing here will not taste death before seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And as we said at that time, that in the history of the church, that several options have been given by godly and learned evangelical scholars. Some have said that it refers specifically to the transfiguration, the passage we're looking at this morning. That's possible, but has some potential weaknesses as well. Some have said that it could refer to the resurrection, which was certainly a revelation of the power and glory of Jesus Christ. Others say it refers to the eventual ascension of Christ as he goes back to the right hand of the Father and sits down and with a victor's welcome and is now reigning in heaven. Others think that it refers to Pentecost where Christ fulfills his promise and pours out, sends the Holy Spirit of God to build the church and cause the church to be empowered and expand and grow. Others say it's the church growth itself which rapidly took over to the point where even the enemies were saying, these men that have turned the world upside down have come here as well. Some say it refers ultimately to Christ showing his glory and judgment upon the city of Jerusalem and upon the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. Some say ultimately refers to the second coming. And I think there's points that could be made about each one of these things, and we just I simply want to lay it out that perhaps it's even more grandiose than we see it this morning in the text that is before us. And then as we look at the Gospel of Matthew itself, we see that this expression of some type of understanding of the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom, or the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven is mentioned several times in the Gospel according to Matthew. In chapter 10, verse 23, he tells the apostles that the Son of Man will come before they've even gone to all of the tribes of Israel. That seems to be something that would have happened very early. Here in chapter 16, verse 28, he says that some will not see death until they see the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. In Matthew 24 and verse 30, we're told that the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven will only come after a time of great tribulation. And in Matthew 26, 64, Jesus says to those who are accusing him, but you from now on will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so there seems to be some mystery here. It shows that we look at how phrases are used in their context and then how they're used in one context helps us to understand in another context. And I think we're seeing here what would be greater and greater fulfillment, greater and greater revelation. So how should we understand this verse? Is it, is it talking about something that's immediate or something that will happen later? Is it something that's already happened or is it something that we still await to occur? Or is Jesus talking about a principle of truth of the greater revelation of his glory that will happen over time and over several different events? And I would make the case that I think that best fits the data as we have that this greater unfolding of the kingdom and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, the, the backdrop in the, in the Old Testament of this teaching is found in the prophet Daniel, chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. And I'm actually going to read that passage for us now, and I want you just to observe who are the players, who's mentioned in this important passage. What are the different events that are referred to or what are the characteristics that are pointed out and what direction is what happening? And we'll just read it now as it comes up on the screen. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Indeed, this reads like some of the glorious visions we see in the book of Revelation that glorify the Lamb of God who is now seated on the throne and is exalted above all. But I think we come back to and land on the fact that whatever this expression means in the context, it refers to the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Son of Man. And certainly, the event we look at this morning, the transfiguration, is a type of the glory of Christ. It shows who he is. It shows what he has come to do. But I think we could also see that Pentecost would be a type of revelation for now. The new covenant age is coming in with its fullness. As people are hearing the gospel and the spirit is put, put upon them and the church is growing. I think we would see in the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, the glory of Christ, who shows his glory, not just in salvation, but also in righteously judging those who have opposed him. And then, of course, we'll see the ultimate glory and revelation of Jesus Christ at his second coming when he comes to make all things right and to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. And so let's let it unfold as we move through the gospel according to Matthew. Admit that maybe we don't have all the answers to every verse, to every situation as it comes up, but we want to continue to be a growing community and grow in our understanding. And so with that, as we kind of catch up with where we left off last time, and now we can move forward, let's begin in the text that is before us today. And we have our first major point, which is light, law, and prophets. And the text begins. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So there's a time element that's given here after six days, when Jesus has uttered this great promise after six days something important has happened and that's offset by luke's rendition which says after about eight days and what we see here is the difference between jewish and greek reckoning of time but they both mean the same thing after about a week jesus took some disciples and went up the mountain and notice the action verbs notice the intentionality notice that it is jesus who is taking the initiative here for he takes with him Peter and James and John, and he is the one that leads them up the mountain. Jesus is the one who at the beginning of the gospel call says, follow me, and he means it. Follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will lead you into the heavenly kingdom. Follow me, and I will lead you to the path that can never fail. And so as he is having the disciples follow him, and as he leads them up for this important spiritual experience, what they will encounter will help ground them in their faith and better prepare them for the ministry that they will have after Jesus ascends back to the Father. He went up with three men that he picked specifically to go up, Peter, James, and John, and the three of them seem to form sort of an inner core within the twelve. They're with him on this mountain. They seem to be closest to him at the Last Supper. They were closest to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. There seems to be a, an intimacy or a fellowship that he's having with these men. And after all, we, we confess that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And to be truly man, he would enter into truly human friendships and relationships. And so these were three that it seems he was especially close to in his inner core as he's leading the disciples to prepare to lead the church. And he leads them up a mountain. Now, if we have had some experience in studying the Bible, those words should cause our heart to beat just a little faster. They should create a sense of expectation. Because important and key events in the Bible happen on a mountain. Abraham goes up a mountain and is ready to offer his son in obedience to, to the Lord. And the Lord intervenes. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law of God, and his face shines with the glory of God. Elijah ascends a great mountain and gets into conflict with the prophets of Baal and Asherah and defeats them. Jesus begins his earthly ministry on the Sermon on the Mount. 
telling that he is the true interpreter of the law, the true son of God. And now here, he's up a mountain to show a great event, a revelation of who he is to these men that are with him. And they go up. And if we compare it with what is said in Luke, this was for a time of prayer. And it turns out they end up spending the night on the mountain. And while they're on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured before them. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. In the providential guidance of Jesus, these three men were meant to see this great event. It was confirmation first to Jesus that he was on the right path. He has just said that the Son of Man now must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And there's confirmation on the mountain that he's on the right path as God the Father speaks from heaven. But I think it also would serve to confirm the still-growing faith of the apostles. That even as they need to continue to grow in their faith, they're given a special revelation of how great Jesus is. And this experience will mark them for the rest of their lives. And in fact, at the end of our time in the Word this morning, we'll look at the testimony of John and the testimony of Peter about this important event. So Jesus is transfigured and the Greek word for being transfigured is metamorphose. Metamorphose. Now, what word do we hear when we hear that in English? We hear metamorphosis, which is exactly where that word came from. And what does metamorphosis mean but the changing of form? And in this metamorphosis, the glory of God in Jesus, which has been veiled during his incarnation, hidden because Jesus has, has veiled it while he is on earth. It's suddenly revealed. It shines fully through. So where it even changes his face, it changes the clothes that he is wearing as the glory of God is now shining through Jesus. And this transfiguration is a symbol of the pure holiness and light and glory that Jesus is by nature. Friends, this is what Jesus looks like now as he sits at the right hand of the Father, full of glory, full of light, the radiance, refulgence of God shining through him. And this was his intrinsic glory from eternity past. As he is preparing the disciples for what is to come, and he's in the upper room and he begins to pray. In John chapter 17, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus knows who he is, and this glory that has been veiled is just for a moment revealed to these three men on this mountain. It's the glory that John sees when under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, as he records the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, he describes the one that he sees, and he says, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. The glory that is shown here on the mountain of transfiguration is the glory that Jesus had with the Father before he came to earth before he was incarnated as God-man who would bring man and God back together through the sacrificial atoning sacrifice that he himself would offer. Jesus is not just endowed with divine glory. He is divine in his very nature. And we're seeing the true nature of Jesus shine through in this figure on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is the God-man, God in the flesh, truly God, and truly, man, as we catch this image, I pray that our minds would be aflame with excitement that this is the Jesus we will behold face to face one day and that we long to see and be in his presence to worship him forever. Now, the glory that is shown through Jesus on this mountain is in contrast with Moses. We know that Moses went up and met the Lord. And because Moses had met the Lord, the glory shone from him to the point where the people said, veil your face, it's too much. But for Moses, that was a reflected glory. 
He was reflecting the glory of God like the moon reflects the light of the sun. Moses was simply reflecting the glory of God. But Jesus on the mountain is showing his intrinsic glory. It's who he is. And it shines through the veil for just a brief moment. But here's the hope that we have as believers. The hope that we have as believers is in Christ, purchased by his blood, redeemed by his sacrifice, filled with his spirit, names written in the Lamb's book of life, preserved for eternal life, that we will one day shine like the sun in the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth. We will shine reflecting the glory of God. And we're already promised as much in the gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew 13 and verse 43, Jesus said, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. John confirms this truth as he's writing in his first epistle. And he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. The great love of God the Father for us. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John, who was an eyewitness to the transfiguration, says that because we will become like Jesus on that day, that our desire and aspiration now is to be free from impurities, free from sin, free from rebellion, free from wrongdoing, confessing our sins, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Because we will become like him, we aspire to become more and more like him even now. As Dr. David Platt says, the more we behold Christ, the more we become like him. The more we fix our attention and our affection on him, the more our lives begin to resemble his. One more thought before we move on. Let's see what, if Paul had anything to say about this. For Paul himself, he saw the glorified Christ. And it changed everything for him. And as we meet Christ, and as we draw closer to him, we also are changed. The passage that Pastor Brian already read, but it's worth reading again. Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is the normal process that as we are growing in Christ, the Christ-likeness should flow more and more through us, showing more and more the glory and the hope and the power that is ours in Christ. Is that true in your life? This morning as you stand here, as you sit here, as the Word of God is open before you, do you belong to Christ this morning? Are you putting your trust in Christ alone to bring you safely to the shores of heaven? Do you have a passion for holiness? You know, when you go to a doctor, he does a diagnosis of what is wrong. It's a similar thing with a soul doctor, as it were whether it's a therapist or a pastor or a counselor, whatever it might be, and somebody doesn't have the passion for Christ, doesn't have a desire for holiness, why? And we get to the diagnosis, why? What is the problem? And at that point, then, as the Lord is revealing to us what the problem is, we repent, we confess, we say, yes, Lord, we turn to him. And the desire then grows in our own hearts to become more and more like Christ, even as we will be like him one day. But our story continues in verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, why do these two Old Testament personalities appear here? Well, what could be said is that Moses and Elijah, they represent both the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. And Jesus is the one to whom they both pointed. There are many similarities between Moses and Elijah. They were both prophets who had a great reverence for the law of God. They both had mountaintop experiences with the Lord. Moses, as he was on the mountain and received the law from God, and Elijah on the mountain as he confronted the prophets of Baal. 
Both Moses and Elijah labored to deliver God's people. Moses from slavery in Egypt and Elijah from slavery to the Baals and the Asherahs and the other false gods. Both of them suffered rejection from their people. They both had unusual endings to their lives. Elijah was taken directly to heaven in a whirlwind. And Moses was laid to rest in a place known to God alone. Both Moses and Elijah, in measure, had seen the power and the glory of God. Moses was seen as a model prophet, and Elijah was the one who was to come before the Lord. Moses had received the promise that a prophet would come who would be like him. And Elijah was expected to return before the day of the Lord. And in the last verses that we have in the Old Testament, both Moses and Elijah are mentioned as those who would somehow come before the day of the Lord. Friends, as we look at Matthew 17, let us not lose the sight of the fact that this is a time of great prophetic fulfillment in the timepiece of God. God is orchestrating many streams that are coming together. And Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain to show that this is so. May the Lord give us eyes to see and continue to grow in what he would have for us in his holy word. For first we see light, law, and prophet. But then secondly, we see a foolish response. Peter. What are we going to do about Peter? If Peter would just have remained silent, it would have gone well for him. But he just finds it something difficult to do. You know, Peter is perhaps like some of us, certainly like people that we have met. Peter is just one of those people that is, that is a little long in mouth and a little short in ears. And just too quick to speak when it would have been a little more time to just listen. Now, he is serving as a leader of the apostles. But he stands there gazing into the heavens or gazing at this wonderful sight that's happening and he makes a suggestion. Verse 4. And Peter says to the Lord, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. This is a good thing, Peter says. I want to make three tents so that we can stay here. Probably a reference here to the Feast of Tabernacles where the people would gather in tents and they would seek the name of the Lord. It was a a feast that was focused on the harvest. And there are several times in the Gospel of Matthew we see that the harvest is used as a metaphor for ultimate judgment. Peter knows that this is a privilege. He knows that this is a blessing for him and for James and John. And so he just wants to keep on in this experience. So he gives a suggestion that is not feasible. It's not possible because, once again, he doesn't fully understand what is happening. And so, as has happened with Peter, a divine rebuke is coming. He can't prepare some tents and stay there and bask in the glory because Jesus has already said he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised. Jesus must go. No cross, no crown. Now, perhaps we can give Peter the benefit of the doubt and say, well, he's speaking better than he knows. He wants Jesus to be glorified. That's good, but he's missing the point. He still has not fully grasped who this Jesus is. Jesus is not just one among equals. I'll make a tent for you and a tent for you and a tent for you. No, all of those other ones point to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the other two. And as we look at the account in Luke, as he, he, he has that, Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration about the fact that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And I believe the ESV uses the word departure here, departure going to Jerusalem, but the Greek word is exodus. Jesus now is going on an exodus that will lead his people out of slavery to sin and lead them into the kingdom of heaven. And Peter doesn't quite get that. So he suggests that they remain on the mountain. He wants to have this wonderful experience for himself. And that's the thing. He wants it for himself. It's good for us to be here. But what about the other disciples? There were 12 of them after all. And what about those that Jesus came to redeem and set free from sin and give eternal life? You see, Peter longs and loves this experience, but it it falls short 
in his understanding because ultimately our desire is that Christ be glorified to the maximum. That he be allowed to finish his messianic ministry that includes death and suffering, crucifixion on a cross, resurrection from the dead. It's, it's good that we have blessings from the Lord. We should desire them. But those ultimately, those blessings are not just to be kept for us, but to be shared and allow Christ's blessings to flow through to those around us. And notice then that God doesn't show a lot of patience with Peter here as we get to our third point, which is son, favor, and listening. This plan of Peter to build some tents can only blur the mission of Jesus. So while Peter is still speaking, not really aware of what he is saying, the Lord from heaven interrupts him with another display of divine power and glory. Verse 5, he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. As Peter is talking, it's as if the Lord resounds with a heavenly enough and does something spectacular and a bright cloud overshadows them. This is the Shekinah glory of God who lives in unapproachable light. It's the glory that appeared in the wilderness as they put up the tabernacle and the glory, and the glory of the Lord came down and blessed it. It's the glory that shone on Mount Sinai when Moses comes down after destroying the first two tablets. He's given two more tablets and as he comes down, the glory of the Lord shines over the mountain. It's the glory that filled the temple of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 after the, after the temple had been built and the ark was placed into the holy place. It's the glory that's seen here. And out of the glory thunders a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son who, with whom I am well pleased. It's exactly what God said at the baptism of Jesus the baptism of Jesus, he gave a heavenly witness to the fact that this was his son and confessing that this is the beginning of my son's ministry as, as Jesus now is launched from his baptism into the wilderness and then goes off and has his ministry. It's a witness that's given here as the son will now pivot in his ministry and go to Jerusalem where he will fulfill the new covenant, pour out the spirit, cause the church to grow. So as the cloud overshadows them and the voice rings out, there are at least two important Old Testament promises that come together here. The first one is in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where the, uh, Yahweh speaks to his son and says that you are my son and promises his son, the Messiah, that he will inherit all the nations and rule over them with a rod of iron. And then in the passage that we read during invocation this morning, Isaiah 42, this is my servant with whom I am well pleased. And you see these two promises come together. The Messiah will be a suffering Messiah. The Messiah will be a reigning Messiah. The Messiah will be a king who will rule because he has first been a sacrifice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice that the Father affirms the divine and messianic nature of the Son. Notice that it must have been Peter who heard this, or it must have been the Father who revealed this to Peter when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And just a few verses later, the Father affirms it. But there's one more thing that's added here. Listen to him. If we look at the promise that was given in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God promised through Moses, that there would be a prophet who would come and that the people were to listen to him and if they didn't listen to him, they would be judged. And so at least two things are happening here. First, God the Father is affirming according to the promise in Deuteronomy 18 that this is his son and prophecy is being fulfilled. But secondly, I think he's saying, Peter, zip it. Stop trying to control things. Stop trying to get involved with your own solutions and your own way of doing things. The Messiah has already said he must go to Jerusalem and he must die. Listen to him. 
Pay attention to what I'm doing, Peter, in the timepiece of time of prophecy and why I've sent my son who must go to Jerusalem to be the substitution, to be the atoning sacrifice for the people of God. Let Jesus tell us who he is. Let him do what he says he's going to do. He's the one that's in charge. You know, we're very quick to be like Peter, aren't we? At times we want to we try to figure out how we can solve our own problems. Or we want to figure out how we can serve God according to our own terms. Yet there's so many things that are laid out in Scripture about how we are to serve God. Why don't we pay attention to those and do them? And then why don't we let him be Lord and lead us in the solution? Maybe at times I need to be like Peter and listen. Maybe you need to be like Peter and listen. That command still comes from heaven. Listen to my son. The one, the son who says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Expects to be obeyed. Expects to be heard. And we may not have full understanding. We may not understand a suffering Messiah. We may not understand why Christians go through times of intense struggle and suffering even today. Yet they do. And for 20 centuries, the church has been a suffering church. We may not understand. But he alone is the beloved son. He alone is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. He is the chosen one who is now revealing the glory of God on the mountain. And so the battle that we have in the Christian life is to keep the focus on Jesus. Keep our focus on him, on who he is, and what he came to do, and what he wants to do. And sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is stop, not talk, and worship. Just start worshiping the Lord. Dr. Daniel Doriani says, there's a time when we should stand and do nothing but worship. It is better to worship God, he says, than to run a program and build a tabernacle. And at times we're so busy doing things for God that we forget we just need to stand and just worship God because he's in control, he's in charge, he knows what he's going to do. And hear that voice from heaven where the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then we get to our fourth point this morning, touch, comfort, and courage. The disciples have done what is expected. They have heard the voice from heaven. They're overwhelmed. Like the Israelites who responded when they saw the glory of God shining on the face of Moses, were so fearful they didn't even want to go near the mountain. Like we see many times when God shows up with a manifestation of his power and glory, and people catch but a glimpse of his glory, what do they do? They're on their faces before the Lord. In fact, when we're in the presence of God, it is normal for us to fall on our face. He's still God. Still worthy of our reverence. Worthy of this holy fear of God will do what God wants to do. And we are his creatures. Peter helps us here because Peter has spoken out of turn and and he hears from God and he responds with fear and, and how often do we speak out of turn and so when we're aware of it we should have a fear before the Lord yes Lord but they fall on their faces they're, they're in the presence of the Almighty you don't have to, they have no questions about whether God is powerful and awesome and worthy of all reverence Verse 6 says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They didn't even dare to look up. They're trembling in fear for they're in the presence of the Almighty, which is what happens to us when we encounter a glimpse of the glory of God. You say, well, that doesn't happen to believers. It does. We've already read the passage in Revelation 1. John sees Jesus in all of his glory and he falls on his face as though dead. There's still this reverence that he has because he's not yet in his glorified state, John. And so when he sees the glorified Christ, he still falls down because God is so awesome. Saul of Tarsus 
we know was a brave and vicious persecutor of the church, hardened against the things of God, devoted his life to destroying the church. But when God decided to move, he was no match for the risen Christ. When he saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory on the road to Damascus, he was knocked to the ground, helpless and blind. And that's the reaction of all who kept the glimpse of God. And unless God has mercy on those who see him, they will be destroyed. And I think we learn anew here the idea that it is only when we see the holiness of God and his perfected holiness and his rightful wrath and judgment against sin and that he will punish sin. Only when we see the holiness of God can we then begin to understand the love of God and what it took to put away his wrath from we who were objects of wrath until we met Christ. But they have this powerful encounter on the mountain. They're terrified, not even willing to lift their faces. They're so overwhelmed. But then God does what he often does with his people. He draws near to them. And here he draws near to them through the person of his son, comforting them at a deep level. And what does he do? He speaks to them. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Jesus knows their situation. It's the rightful response that they have. But he comes to them and he touches them and he speaks to them and says, be not afraid, arise, let's continue on. And we find then the comforting presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is still the only way to God. He is still the one that leads us to the Father. And that brings us comfort. We try to domesticate God. But he says many times in the prophets, you thought I was a man like you, and he's not a man like us. He's God. And so I like the illustration that comes out of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan, of course he's not safe. He's Aslan. But he is good. And that's our hope as believers. We want to make God safe, like somehow we can control him. But it's only when we're covered in Christ that we're truly safe and truly experience that God is good. Jesus Christ, even this morning, my friends, is praying for us at the right hand of the Father. Because he's good. Because he's the only access point that we have to the Father. And as he is praying for us, he invites us to join them at the right hand of the Father and pray. So let that encourage your own prayer life. That Jesus comes to us, he touches us, he says, get up, have no fear, let's keep going. Because in him, we have full coverage and protection from all evil. And then lastly, we see Jesus stands alone. Verse 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. The fear is gone. And they see that Jesus is standing alone. Jesus, who now is the focus of the revelation of God, given through the law and the prophets, of which he is the fulfillment. Meditate this week on the first few verses of the book of Hebrews. There are seven things mentioned in the first three verses about who Jesus is. And meditate on those truths about this Jesus, who is the exact image of God, and who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the one that the Father endorses on the mountain. Already we've seen in Matthew that he is greater than Moses greater than Elijah, greater than Solomon, greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than all the offerings and sacrifices of the Old Testament. For all of those things, the prophets and the law, the signs and the sacrifices, the priests and the offerings pointed to the one who was to come, and the one who was to come has come. And now he stands alone. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Because when it comes to the spiritual realm, when it comes to spiritual truth, when it comes to eternal life, Jesus is the only game in town. 
He'll take your eyes off of everything else and put them on Jesus. Let he be the one that captures your heart in awe and reverence. Let your gaze fall upon him in wonder and majesty and worship him truly in spirit and truth. Jesus is preparing to go to Jerusalem. He has said he must go. But he's also now preparing the disciples for what is to come. And as he is preparing them, he shows that he has authority over nature, authority over the spiritual realm, authority over the law, authority over life and death. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at the end of Matthew then, as he has prepared these men, he is going to tell them that he has all authority and sends them out to go to all the world with all that Jesus has taught. And they'll show that by obeying. Obedience is putting into practice what the Lord has told us. Now eventually, the apostles who had this great experience on the mountain, eventually they got it. Eventually John got it. For as he reflects upon what he had seen and writes decades later under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he says in John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John, who was amazed by what he saw, remained faithful to the Lord Jesus throughout his life. He was the last remaining apostle who died after decades of service in what we know today as Ephesus and Asia Minor. Peter eventually got it. Eventually. As he's reflecting at the end of his life and he knows that he's going to die, he writes one last letter. We know it as 2 Peter. And in chapter 1, he's reflecting on what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's talking about the wonderful testimony and truth that is the Word of God. And listen to what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the expression. Power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter knows that he was privileged to have this experience and that he needed to learn from it. And Peter would eventually die a martyr's death, but the death for his love and devotion and affection of the Lord Jesus Christ because he had encountered the living Christ. But he also knew that if Jesus Christ was in fact the transfigured one, that if he was the Christ, the son of the living God, then he is Lord of all, and he has the right to make a claim on any of our lives for anything at any time. And Peter was willing to follow him wherever it might lead including a martyr's death. When we see, catch a glimpse, and grow in our understanding of the true nature of Jesus, it is our rightful response to worship. It's a fulfillment of the first and greatest command to love the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's our first obligation to worship, not do something for God, not plan something for God, but rejoice in what he has done and who he is and what he's already done for us in Christ. Worship. When we worship, when we pray and communicate with the eternal one, we accomplish more than we could ever accomplish with all the efforts of our flesh. So let's worship. Let's delight in our great God. Let's delight in this glorified Jesus. Let it, may he become more precious to us. Next week, we're going to finish out this portion of uh, Matthew 17. We're going to look at the last few verses after the transfiguration because there's so many different things going on with, with prophecy. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away from today? Because Jesus leads his sheep, just like he led Peter, James, and John, we will follow him wherever he leads. Now, yes, I'm riding high on the mission conference that we just had. We talk about going out to the four corners of the world. But this is the gospel life. This is the focus of the church. Where he leads, we will follow. 
If it's up a mountain, if it's into a valley, if it's a period of great victory, or if it's into prison, we will follow Christ because we live this long, but eternity is forever. Secondly, knowing that Jesus now reigns in glory, we long to become like him as we preach the gospel to ourselves, as we apply it and confess our sins, as we live for him, as we ask for his help, as we fellowship with one another, as we spend time in, in service, worship, adoration of our great God. But because our first responsibility is to worship the Lord, we will spend time in praise and adoration and worship as a priority. If that's not already a priority in your life, that you set aside a time each day to sing to the Lord, to worship Him, to tell Him how great He is, to, to read Scripture and just worship Him, I implore you to make it part of your life going forward. Be transformed by the living Christ. Just love him. Just worship him. Just adore him. Just revere him. And you will find your heart changing, your mind changing, will lead to your actions changing because you're going to fellowship in the presence of God. And lastly, because Jesus alone is the fulfillment of the plan of God, we will live for him and serve him above all else. If Jesus is the only game in town, then let it be reflected in our lives in our calendars, in our time, and how we make decisions, that we have the aroma of Christ that would flow from us as we experience him, giving a glimpse of his glory and awaiting that day when we will see him fully in his presence in the fullness of his glory. Let us pray. Father, this morning we are thankful for a gentle reminder of the greatness of Christ. We're thankful for the reminder of how far we fall and how short we arrive as we contemplate that in our own lives. And we're thankful that in Christ we are accepted and received by you. But Father, we don't want to just rest there. We want to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and experience him more and live for him and love for him. So Father, would you teach us? Would you help us? Would you give us eyes to see how we can walk in your glory and glorify you on Wednesday morning and Thursday evening and Saturday afternoon and all throughout the week? Father, we want to walk with you. Teach us what that looks like. And thank you for your lavish grace and mercy that bids us ever to come and receives us, strengthens us, and walks with us. Father, may our lives in a greater way this week reflect who you are. And may we enjoy you ever more and increasingly because you're working in and through us. To that end, Father, we pray your glory and for our ultimate good in Jesus name. Amen.